This is Gianfranco Zaccari on Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? So my name is Gianfranco Zaccari, and I started a company called Continuum uh, actually 30 years ago. Uh, I'm an industrial designer and an architect by training, but uh, uh, most of my life I've been involved in innovation. And, and I feel like you know we, we we specifically targeted Continuum in the book because I feel like you're you are the premier firm for not just industrial design but really kind of an innovation strategy um, consulting firm. Uh, there's some awesome products we talk about developing the book, and we'll, we'll talk about here. But first, let's let's talk about how did you get started? How did you found Continuum? How did it come to exist? Uh, well, actually, it started before before it started. It started when I was working for. Um, uh, uh, international company uh, developing uh, medical electronics, and uh, in that company, I learned a lot about what needed to, to to be in place in order for innovation to really take root, uh, and uh, what, in some ways, was dysfunctional in uh, in many in many corporations, uh, which was the fact that uh, corporations are often uh, were, and maybe some of them still are, siloed. Uh, and, um, you know, a lot of people talk about the siloing, siloing of different disciplines within an organization. What people don't talk about is the siloing of the, of the customer is, uh, the inability to really understand customers. Uh, and the, the, um, the fact that too many organizations still depend on things like focus groups to get some sense of what, what customers, um, what would resonate with customers. Uh, and we discovered that that's actually the, absolutely the wrong way to do things. Uh, we also discovered that um, uh, leading experts in fields uh, are not representative of, of uh, uh, all the human beings that interact with a product or service. And anyway, as a result of this experience, we were able to uh, actually turn the company around and, and develop some uh, really groundbreaking products that uh, actually turned a, a small subsidiary that they had in Europe into the leading developer of, uh, of uh, new technologies, new products for that, for that company. And uh, that philosophy, uh, that notion about how uh, to be successful in innovation and embedding innovation is uh, that experience really is what went into betting Continuum. So Continuum started 30 years ago uh, with the notion of um, doing innovation from the inside out and the outside in at the same time. So I uh, started with uh, my business partner at the time was um, uh, a guy named Jerry Zindler, who was uh, and still is a physicist and, a, and an engineer. And uh, we'd actually met at that same company uh, called Instrumentation Laboratory. And um, we added a third element, which at that time we called the phase zero. And phase zero was about stepping back and really trying to understand what happens in a, in a context. So we started going out and visiting, uh, as we had done actually at Instrumentation Laboratory, was, uh, we went out and started visiting uh, hospitals and laboratories and uh, the patient rooms and and uh, uh, looking at what happened uh, in uh, in real life 
uh, and we discovered a lot of interesting things. We also discovered that uh, it was a kind of a losing proposition from a business standpoint because it was very difficult to sell the notion of a phase zero to middle-level managers whose job was to get something out within the next, let's say, six months to a year. Uh, but we realized that this phase zero was really important because to develop something in six months or a year, which is the wrong thing, that didn't address uh, some important issues, would be the biggest mistake of all. Uh, but what we needed to do was to elevate the, uh, that realization uh, to the C-suite of companies, which we did. Uh, and we started a group within Continuum. I think we were the first to do that in a, in a design and development firm uh, that we called, um, uh, actually the original name was SEED, which was Science, uh, uh, Engineering, Ergonomics, and Early Design. And um, that process... Uh, led to some pretty revolutionary products early on, uh, the Reebok pump shoe being one of them, uh, the Swiffer for uh, P&G being another. Uh, but as time evolved, we, we also started to see that, uh, that that process of stepping back, of understanding people, understanding not just what people said, but what people did and what people's aspirations were and what people struggled with, but also what they were hoping to be able to do within the context of something, uh, was just as powerful in the innovation of services as it was in the innovation of products. And in fact, uh, was also powerful in the innovation of organizational structures and uh, processes within client companies. So we started to branch out in, um, in, uh, from, from this basis of uh, this origin in, in product innovation to service innovation. Uh, so, for example, we uh, reinvented the way banking would be done for um, uh, a major um, global bank called BBVA. And we, we, we repurposed the, the lobby experience for a large uh, uh, hotel chain. Um, the notion of always finding that sweet spot between what's um, desirable for people, what's technically feasible to do, and what's emotionally compelling. Um, so uh, actually, I must say that when I read your book, uh, it read uh, very in a very familiar way because I think all of the chapters resonated with me because I could see elements of this, of these chapters in so many experiences that we've had. Um, the, um, you know, uh, and I, I guess one of the reasons why I appreciated the book so much is because it's really important to dispel the myths that innovation is somehow, you know, uh, a magic powder that's sprinkled on top of something because, you know, you're the genius, genius creator, uh, or, uh, and, or that once you have a really good idea, the world will be the path to your door because they won't unless they know about it. And so that means that the innovation can't just be about the core idea, but the innovation has to be about the way it's communicated, the way it's presented, the way the timing of it, uh, the organization that can support it. Uh, there are so many um, um, elements to vetting innovation that sticks. 
I totally agree. I, um, I, when you when you talk about the initial sort of the idea of the phase zero and the importance of doing the phase zero and how it was a hard sell to most people, it's it's kind of reminds me of that. You know, like what you said, when you build a better mousetrap, the world won't beat a path to your door. Is that's kind of makes up the last chapter of of the book, but it's mm-hmm. the same thing. It's a it's a hard sell. It's what organizations needed was that phase zero, but they didn't. Mm-hmm. It was it was hard for them to understand it. If if it's okay, let's let's talk a bit about the phase zero because we talk about it in the book uh, a little bit with the design of the the Reebok and the Swiffer line of products, particularly the WetJet. Um, talk to me a bit uh, a bit more about how that Phase Zero has played a role in design. Um, my I mean my personal favorite story is the design of the Reebok Pump Shoe, but that's just because I had them as a as a kid and as a teenager and, and loved them. But um, talk a bit about maybe on the product side how that Phase Zero um, has worked for something like the Pump, and then also on the experience side and what when you stepped back what you sort of saw needed to happen in that service design. Uh, sure. space well so uh, uh the the pump shoe uh example is 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 perfect because it actually allowed us to move from phase zero to uh, uh doing strategy work uh, uh on, related to innovation so phase zero was really uh something that we insisted on doing when we were asked to take an idea or a brief that was generated primarily by our clients or entirely by our clients and we were asked to act on that. And we would always say, no, no, let's step back a bit and try to find out what's actually going on here and because we need a bit more information to uh, really fulfill the mission. And as I said before, that would be often uh, stressful to our client contact, which at the time was mostly a, um, a mid-level engineering manager or marketing manager. You know, wanted to get the thing done and thought that they they already knew what they wanted. Um, and it was also uh, not a great uh, moneymaker for us. In fact, it was a money loser because in order to do phase zero meaningfully, we would have to put more time uh, than we could be paid for. Um, with, uh, with the pump, we applied this phase zero because we were uh, asked to look at something that was uh, – very specific in terms of the request. You know, the client wanted another energy return system. But, you know, we were fortunate. We stepped back and we saw that there were other opportunities. We also had the ability to analyze the physics involved in energy return and, and realize that it didn't make much difference. Don't, don't tell the uh, Jordan people that. <laughs> uh, but the, uh, uh, the, well, you know, uh, uh, Michael Jordan does make a difference. Oh, I uh, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> uh, but uh, the um, you know the ability to see other opportunities for innovation, and then to go through the process where we could actually, uh, in retrospect, see the difference between what we were doing in not only uh, looking for opportunities beyond what the consumer was asking for or what the competition was doing, uh, but then also. Uh, meaningfully allowing people to experience the innovation by actually modeling it, uh, as opposed to just asking people what they thought of the idea, allowed us to see just how valuable it was. And that allowed us to make the jump from phase zero to uh, strategy work. And strategy work was always, from that point on, 
uh, much better funded, and it was always done for people in organizations that were not concerned about what was going out the door three or six months from now, but the direction of the company, sort of the future of the product line uh, that they would be doing, uh, products and services. And increasingly, what we started to see, especially with the advent of, of digital, uh, uh, was that there was a blurring of products and services, that products support services, and services are enabled by products. Uh, so we, we started to apply that in, uh, as I mentioned before, in the area of banking. So we spent time in South America uh, as well as in Europe and in uh, parts of North America. Uh, looking at how people really interacted and perceived financial services and who uh, uh, the uh, most important customers were and how they perceived uh, uh, the services that a, that a bank offered and how they, they wanted to access those services, which was really, really diametrically opposed to the way bank thought uh, the, uh, the customer wanted. Uh, and the end result was that it, we created a different si series of interaction points that range all the way from uh, uh, a, um, the owner of a favela in a small town in a mountain village in, in South America being the local banker to the interaction that one would have on your cell phone or on, a, on an ATM machine. Uh, and in order to do that, it required the uh, really the redesign of the IT infrastructure of the bank. So, you know, major, major investment on the part of the bank. But the end result is a different relationship, a closer relationship, a more long-lasting relationship with the bank's current customers and the development of future customers in a way that's mutually beneficial. You know, without going into into great details that uh, would be confidential. Yeah, well, and I think you know it goes beyond what I really love about the work that you all uh, do. And and sadly, we didn't have enough time to get to this uh, specifically in the book. Was that that uh, applying that phase zero concept and and really taking a step back and looking at all the needs. Um, from all the different angles, has also been really, really useful in, in some amazing projects um, that really give back and have made a difference, from from insulin pumps to uh, things like the the kind of all-terrain wheelchair project that you were involved in. Um, I, I think it's fascinating that it works not just for major investments and for making uh, banking, banking simpler and better and make more money, but it really has made a difference even on that that realm as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the, well, of course, the insulin pump is really near and dear to my heart because it deals with uh, uh, type 1 diabetes, which mostly affects children. And, um, you know, and the realization there really was that even though insulin pumps existed before, they were, you know, worn on a belt. And I don't know what people did with them when they went to sleep at night. Uh, but, you know, on the surface, they delivered insulin in the best way, uh, more like the body does naturally. But uh, it was seen that, um, that that delivery of insulin for kids was probably not very good because there were infections and it wasn't widely accepted. Well, the reason it wasn't widely accepted was, yes, infections. Why? Because there were these exposed lines that when a, if a kid played, uh, they would get snagged on something and they would open up the seal 
and uh, dirt would get in, and, and, and there would be an infection. But actually, more importantly than that, uh, kids didn't really want to wear them because you stigmatized them. It inhibited their ability to be kids, right? So, so the whole notion of developing a wearable, disposable pump that could be worn under clothes, that could be worn when the kid went swimming, uh, uh, that would allow uh, a kid to sleep comfortably, uh, was you know an obvious innovation. Of course, then making that real was uh, uh, a great challenge. You know, and this is also where having uh, uh, deep technical capabilities comes to play. Um, actually, I can talk about another project that uh, is near to my heart, uh, near dear to my heart. And that is a, a system called Compass for Herman Miller for hospitals. Hmm. And this was um, uh, the first foray for Herman Miller, which is widely known for, as an innovator in office furniture in, um, in hospital rooms. And we started looking at uh, the needs of, uh, of a hospital room from multiple perspectives. Again, as part of the strategy work that we did. You know, understanding the, the patient's perspective. I was a patient myself on, on a couple of occasions. Uh, lots of other people in the office were, were patients for, for different uh, purposes or different um, needs. Uh, and then we looked at it from the nurses and the physicians and the physical therapist perspectives and from the perspective of people who clean the rooms and people who bring the food. And from the uh, purpose of, from the perspective of the aspirations that uh, that people have, uh, both to be uh, you know a good uh, good nurse and, uh, and as a patient to get out of there as soon as possible, uh, and we look at it from uh, from uh, an administrator's perspective, planners, uh, designers' perspective, and we came up with a very obvious conclusion at at uh, at the end, which was that in order to um, fulfill the mission of, of, of creating the best environment for healing in a hospital room that would be planned today but would be built tomorrow, tomorrow meaning a year, two, three, four years from when it was planned, with all the changes in technology and acuity and so forth. We needed to design something that was infinitely adjustable and, and movable and uh, repositionable and that would welcome new technologies. We also needed to do something that was uh, that would really uh, help to um, uh, uh, minimize in, in, infections. Uh, so that's really deals with, with being able to be very cleanable uh, and uh, provide for hand washing, which is fundamental. So we developed a system, uh, and by the way, it hangs on walls. Uh, it can be installed very, very quickly. It hangs on walls, so there's actually it makes cleaning the room faster. Uh, you know, it looks great. Uh, it can be tailored. But uh, the story that I love about that was that um, when um, uh, a tornado hit, uh, I think it was Choplin, Missouri, mm -hmm. it destroyed the the hospital. And uh, so they, the uh, the military brought in a field hospital temporarily, but they had to build another hospital really, really quickly. And uh, with this system, they were able to build a fully functional hospital in nine months, which was unheard of. Um, so, you know, it's another 
it's like getting the uh, this email from this little girl in India who's wearing the insulin pump. Uh, it's um, it's then that you that, that you realize that doing your homework up front really pays off, and it pays off in making a difference in people's lives. And I think if you make a, a difference in people's lives, you're going to make a difference in your business. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely, and I, I love some of those examples. I should say to those listening, um, you can check out a lot of those um, products if you want a little bit more information on at continuuminnovation.com. They've got an awesome section on their site that shows uh, a lot of these really cool uh, projects. And, and I should say the the other thing that I love, I, I'm fascinated with the concept of phase zero, and I, I'm also fascinated with the way that, and this we talk about a lot in the book, the way that you structure teams around certain projects. And talk mm-hmm. talk a bit about how you hire people into the Continuum family, and then also how teams assemble around different projects? Yeah, okay, that's a great question. Um, yeah, so hiring people at Continuum is really um, one of the most important things we do. So we're looking for people who have deep skills, but also have a breadth of vision. So uh, 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 someone who's, who is really on top of their game in, in whatever their discipline is, but their brain is not just focused on that. Their brain is uh, is broader. Uh, and we look for people from different fields for that. So we think that when we form a team, no matter how talented and sensible and sensitive people are, you know, you still look at the world from your own eyes and your own perspective and your own background and your own history. But if we can put a team together of a few people that have slightly different perspectives. Sometimes it's different cultural perspectives. Uh, sometimes it's different technical perspectives. Sometimes it's different gender perspectives. You put that team together, then what they collect and what they notice and what resonates with them uh, collectively is more than uh, uh, the sum total of the individual sensibilities. But not only that, you then empower those people to uh, take that learning that they've that they've gotten, which some of which can be translated into a document or into a series of um, uh, presentations to explain, you know, sort of the big findings. But a lot of it is a lot of subtle sensibilities about nuanced ways of doing things. So when then these people execute on the on the innovation from coming up with the core idea to actually developing it so that it can be commercialized. Uh, they, they have that deep uh, sensibility. And we think that as part of this process, because we're actually going out and understanding people, that it's the people that we understand to become part of the team. Uh, so, you know, we, we will create metaphors for people to respond to. We, we, you know, along the way, we'll go back with, with additional metaphors. At some point, we'll, we'll have uh, early prototypes. Uh, you know, uh, we, we really want to get truly the voice of the customer into the process. Um, and, um, you know, it, it all comes down to people. The people that are on our staff, the people from the organization we're serving uh, that we try to integrate into the project and the people that we're trying to serve as customers. And, you know, we believe that uh, treating people as customers, whether you call them patients or um, uh, kids playing basketball, 
uh, is really important. Hmm. No, absolutely. And I think it's, it's fascinating to me because when you think about this sort of, you think about industrial design firms, which I think continuum is far more than that, which is what fascinated me about it. But when you, when you think about the average, you think, oh, okay, there's a couple industrial designers, maybe some graphic designers, a couple engineers. Your, your staff, if, if you've ever hung out on the continuum website and read all the little the bios of everybody who's on staff, it's an incredibly diverse group of folks on staff there. Uh, and diverse in, in their backgrounds, but also diverse in their locales and, and uh, you know, in their national uh, origins. Um, so yeah, we're very proud of that. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's awesome to me. And it, and it speaks to that idea that, you know, it takes, takes a group of people, especially a group of people from di- different perspectives, some of which have a little familiarity working together, especially when you bring the client in, et cetera, but that you get the benefit of all of those different ties right. into different areas and get to see that problem, I, I think is, is so important. Yeah. It's where the, the notion of creative friction comes in, you know? Uh, if everybody thinks the same way, they all see the world the same way. But right. if there's a little bit of difference, you have a little bit of creative friction, and from that comes that kind of that insight that maybe you would have missed otherwise. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think truthfully, and that speaks to another uh, another myth that we we talk about a bit in the book, which is the idea of trying to kind of do everything by consensus. We think when you have to throw out ideas <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. Talk, talk a bit about, I, I guess, on that friction side, I'm sure there's some conflict that arises as you're developing all those divergent ideas. How how do you all deal with when those diverse perspectives tend to clash? Um, well, you know, strangely enough, they don't usually clash. They usually... Uh, come together in a kind of a communal ha-ha. Um, so I, I should say that when we, when we look at the customer, when we look at people, when we, when we uh, examine what people say and do, we don't, you know, we want to we wanna hear what they say, but we don't necessarily take it at face value. Right? So we want to understand the meaning behind what they say. And then, you know, we bring that back and we'll slosh through what that means. But generally speaking, we don't come up with a, with one or two or three ideas and say, aha, these are it. We'll go back and test them some more uh, in direct and indirect ways. And usually what happens is that the, um, the, the, the best ideas seem to uh, gain consensus. So in other words, we don't look for consensus to identify the best ideas. They kind of, uh, I think as Einstein said, uh, they knock on the door and they say, here I am. Hmm. Right. And, and you just have the sense that it's the right thing to do. Yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. And I think the, the thing that, that drives it when I, as I studied kind of how you're, you all operate too, is that it's all, it's all in the service of producing that end best product for the customer. It's not about, I want my idea to be championed. The, the, where there is divergence, it's not around the idea of winning agendas and that sort of, it's all in the service of that one big goal, which is to delight the customer, whether it be with a product service. Uh, That's right. Yeah. In fact, in fact, what we're what we say now is that we want to create the best experience for the customer, because increasingly it's you know it's about the product, it's about the service, but it's also about the interaction that that people have with other people in an organization. Right. So we're also starting to kind of um, understand the nature of interpersonal relationships. No, I think I think that's a, a fascinating. 
um, a, a fascinating way to perceive what the end goal is. Even on, you know, we tend to think of a tangible product as as feature laden, and yet it's even then it's about the experience. You can have all the features in the world, and if it it isn't that sort of seamless, delightful experience, it just doesn't it doesn't work. Well, and in fact, if you have uh, features that people don't want, they become points of irritation. Yeah, no, true, true. So, so sometimes it's, no, it's knowing what to take away. Yeah. As well as what to add. Uh, no, I, absolutely. I'm, I'm a huge fan of uh, Matthew May and his ideas around subtraction in, in that regard, that sometimes it's uh, a, pro- a product is done or a, a piece of art is done when there's nothing left to take away rather than nothing left to right. add. And, and truthfully, it speaks to your point about the wrong product done in six to 12 months uh, is useless. It's about taking that right product. Oh yeah, oh, useless and extremely expensive. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I I'll go back to the to the to the Reebok story. You know, Nike introduced <laughs> their version that they had been working on for God knows how long. I I've been told eight years. You know, and it disappeared from the marketplace. So imagine the investments that they made on developing this idea that no one really believed in strongly. Obviously, because it could have, done, it could have been done faster. It was executed badly in its details. But it was launched. They spent money in the launch and the marketing and the promotion of it, and then it disappeared from the marketplace. So, you know, uh, making the the wrong idea uh, sooner is probably the worst thing you can do. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I, to be honest, I think that that goes back to this idea for me at least, and, and maybe this is seeing the world through my through book colored glasses. Uh, but I think it goes back to the idea that there's a lot of folks, uh, too many folks in the business world that I don't know have a full grasp on this process of innovation and, and how it happens and how it's kind of a messy process. It goes to me, it goes back to the idea of, of myths, and and I know that you and the folks there get a, a firsthand view at some of the myths, some of the kind of faulty beliefs around how innovation mm-hmm. happens. What are some of the ones that you sort of, that stand out to you as the most, um, most prevalent? Well, I think the, the idea of, of, uh, you know, brainstorming, that, that brainstorming is the way you get to innovative ideas and that, uh, you know, the more ideas you can come up with, the better off you are. Um, I think that's a, that's a huge myth because, um, uh, it, it's really easy to come up with a whole bunch of harebrained ideas, uh, and especially if you're if they're not informed by uh, by anything. You know, you just can can dream of anything that you want, or worse yet, if you bring forth your biases and and think that this will be a great idea because because you've thought of it and and uh, you know from past experience it should be a great idea, as opposed to understanding the characteristics of what would be a really good idea. And you're never going to understand those perfectly, but if you understand sort of the human element, you understand the technology element, you understand the economic element better, you're much more likely to uh, whittle down ideas that you can generate to the ones that sort of fit within, within this uh, domain that you've, that you've been able to construct, uh, you know, the domain of, good ideas for this particular context at this particular time. Hmm. Yeah, and I think that, again, is where that phase zero concept comes in of really doing the research and understanding the need. But but then also, like you said, prototyping sort of early and often and interacting yeah, with the customer often right. with trying to externalize right. the idea and, and show it off. And it, it morphs all the time. 
That's right. And, and, and actually, when you're, you're showing it and getting feedback and, and learning from it, making mistakes faster. But it's also a way of um, uh, vetting it within an organization, of, of, of building consensus that it's the right thing to do uh, within an organization. So it has... Um, it's really, it really is a very powerful tool. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it speaks to that idea that it's not just, like you said with brainstorming, it's not just an idea, a process of finding that right idea. It, that idea changes every time it's externalized and it's a, it's a long and not really linear process to get to that, mm-hmm. that great idea that one, I think once we get to it, it's, it seems so simple. You know, I think that the story that we tell improperly about products like the pump or like the Swiffer is there was this one big insight and that changed everything and, and ignore sort of the endless prototypes and the externalizing and mm-hmm. sometimes even the battles with customers over, no, this really is what you want uh, type of a, right. an right. idea. No, that's true. It's uh, uh, an idea that seems so obvious that people say, well, why didn't people think of that before? Uh, Often as a result of that very messy process. Yeah. You know, of whittling the, the wheat from the chaff. Yeah, and I, I think you know, that speaks to so many ideas around, you know, in in the book we call it that sort of eureka myth about, well, why didn't anybody have that idea before? It's because that idea mm-hmm. is really a combination of nine different ideas that happened at different times, and when they finally mm-hmm. blended together, they became this genius idea that looks obvious. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've, you know, I think it was Isaac Newton that said that he, he could see further because he stood on the shoulders of giants. Uh, Which we point out in the book is ironically a quote lifted from another giant, Bernard de Chatra, that that said, we are like dwarfs standing on the shoulders of giants so we can see further. So even even, Uh even Newton uh, is borrowing ideas. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's right. I remember now you – I said, I didn't know that. Uh, But the ability to misquote. (laughs) Yeah. There you go. Um, yeah, but, uh, you know, I, I, we, the, the reality is that we are, uh, uh, we, uh, everything is changing constantly. So what happens before us uh, informs us. Uh, the nature of what we're doing now is different than, than what it was a year ago. People are changing. Uh, the competitive context is changing. Uh, people's expectations are changing. So it, it really is, uh, I, I think it's, it's interesting to think that really innovation is also not a, a point in time. It's, it's, a, it's a recur, it needs to be a recurring event. Mm-hmm. And especially when one thinks about um, you know, IP protection, which is becoming more and more difficult to, to maintain, uh, you come up with an idea which is protectable, but the best way to protect your organization is to keep coming up with, with really innovative, good ideas. Yeah, no, and to I, do it faster than anybody else. Absolutely, and and this uh, sadly this came out um, after I did all the research for the book. But uh, Rita Rita Gunther McGrath has this fascinating book out now about the idea that finding a competitive advantage, uh, finding a product that is unique and and you know, hard to imitate for 20 something years is, is impossible to do anymore. And it's the firms that win. They're the ones that are constantly having mm-hmm. new good ideas that replace right. as the, as one good idea is starting to decline, they're already out on the market with a, with another one and unafraid right. to cannibalize their own uh, sales in the service of staying uh, one step ahead. 
That's absolutely correct. And, and that points to the, to the fact that the, the most innovative thing you need to do as, a, as the leader of an organization is actually to build a, a, a culture of innovation uh, rather than a culture of defense of, of you know, what you've got. Yeah, and and at the risk of sounding like a self promoter, uh, it, ta- it building that culture of innovation takes some some knowledges around building networks of, of different innovative people, and also breaking through some of the myths. You know, I, I loved that mm-hmm. you started with the idea that this whole continuum um, organization and all of the innovations that it's produced came out of a frustration with that siloed uh, ideas. Beyond these people stay in this area, these people stay mm-hmm. in this, and and I. I find it fascinating sometimes when there's a person in in companies that is the chief innovation officer or there's an office of innovation as if that's where all the good ideas come from or go to, (laughs) and they come from nowhere in the order. And and the culture of innovation is just confined to that floor. Right. Yeah. No, the the innovation, I think, has to come from the bottom up and from the top down uh, at the same time. In fact, we often find that in in some organizations – there, you know, we'll come up with something that turns out to be a really good idea, and we'll discover that somebody internally had actually developed a similar notion, but no one listened to them. Yeah, and you know, I, I, I find that effect far too often. With um, we, we t- we've hinted at it a bit before, but we close the book with this idea of the mousetrap myth of so often, even even if there's not a culture of innovation, there are still creative people in the organization at, at levels where, when they have those ideas and present them, n- nobody listens. Either either you know, in a best case scenario, they get ignored. A worst case scenario, they get kind of chastised and, and oh, beat down over having the idea. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I, I want to, as we wrap up, I would not forgive myself if we didn't talk about, we've talked about some of the ways that Continuum is designing some products that are really making a difference. But the other thing I want to stress is that this process of innovation that, that Continuum has uh, has discovered and the, the methods that they bring to the table, they're not just, you know, use in first world companies where it's designing newer and expensive products, excuse me, first world countries where it's designing new and more expensive products. They, they work at all levels. And the, the idea of taking a step back and really understanding, and you've managed to do some amazing things uh, in the developing uh, and uh, in the developing world as well. Tell, tell me a little about some of how you're approaching that uh, bottom of the pyramid and, and how the, the method still works there. And you've created some awesome uh, products and services for them as well. Well, uh, you know, the, the basic notion is really trying to understand people and cultures um, yeah, deeply by, by um, actually being part of their world. So, you know, we've done projects with Grameen Bank and um, with uh, Rockefeller Foundation and um, uh, the um, uh, One Laptop Per Child and so forth. But I'll give you an example of, of how this works. Um, we did a, a pro bono project in South Africa dealing with water and sanitation. And this was a you know, very short project, you know, only a few weeks. Uh, we went to a village called Garasai Village, which is about three hours from Pretoria, um, in the middle of this plain. And about a kilometer from the village is a river, which was really fortuitous because actually uh, South Africa doesn't have enough water for, for all of its people. <clears throat> and the village had uh, was very proud that they had installed a, um, a very sophisticated water purification system. Uh, that was given by a, I think, a Swedish uh, NGO, 
And every day, uh, someone would go down to the to the river, which was about a kilometer away, uh, and put a, uh, a hose into the into the water to pump up this polluted water uh, to this uh, station for for it to be purified. So, on the surface, this is a you know a solution to a big problem. Well, we started digging into it, and what we realized was that there was a huge a uh, problem within the village because the only people who could afford the water because of the cost of the filters and, and the energy and so forth and, and the filtration process were the wealthy of the village. And the poor were still drinking water that uh, a water vendor would would bring to them on a donkey cart from the river, polluted water. So we started looking at, at the problem from you know, multiple standpoints, from the standpoint of, of employing people, uh, from the standpoint of, of what, how water really is used. And we realized that water was used, you know, in small quantities for consumption and cooking, in larger quantities for washing and cleaning, and then larger yet uh, when available for, uh, for irrigation. And we also realized that in, in uh, South Africa, uh, children were often tasked with carrying water, uh, and that that would become a, a vector for disease because they wouldn't wash their hands, they would touch the water, uh, and and so forth. So we started looking at a much more holistic solution, uh, including a point of view, a point of use filtration for the small amount of water that that you consume. Uh, water-saving devices, ways of providing um, uh, sealed water containers that uh, could be used to transport the water, uh, that could be co-branded by with companies such as Coca-Cola and so forth to develop uh, their image in the marketplace. So we started, you know, sort of seeing that there was an opportunity to improve the economic basis of the of the village, employ local. Uh, resources to build and uh, service certain elements uh, uh, and um, create a more sustainable solution that actually involved less technology. Uh, now, you know, I won't go into the details because it's uh, it's a long story, but it was really indicative to me that sometimes Solutions are uh, done, uh, you know, the, the, the same way that a, uh, a hammer sees everything as a nail, right? Uh, that we really need to step back and to see the relationship between different things. And you can come up with some fairly simple and elegant solutions that are more sustainable by doing that. And I think that that's the that's the opportunity in in um, uh, doing what Prahlad uh, um, uh, um, talked about, right? The, the seeking the fortune at the bottom of the pyramid. By looking at the poor as customers, you have to be able to understand how you can provide value to them. Uh, and value is how can you help them to to improve their standard of living. And in order to do that, you have to come up with solutions to tough problems that are fundamentally extremely simple. But not only that, you have to come up with solutions that give people pride in what they do and who they are. 
so I, I think that there's a, a vast world out there, and I'm glad to see that we're engaged uh, more and more frequently to um, help uh, uh, companies and uh, not-for-profit organizations um, make inroads. And I should say it's not just in the developing world. It's also in, in uh, the U.S. Uh, there are areas of the U.S. that need help. I, I totally agree, and I think that uh, they wouldn't have called themselves design thinkers or anything like that, but they certainly took that same approach of, of stepping back, looking at it all, coming up with ideas, testing ideas, refining ideas. Um, the, the method works to produce innovation both for, for companies at, at the richest levels and even for improving the lives of people in the poorest countries. I think it, it works on so many levels. There is, there's a way to, I won't use the term systemize because that seems too linear, but there's a way to get your head around how to make this innovation work. And it works uh, to make the world a better place on a variety of different levels. So uh, that, that said, I absolutely loved studying a Continuum for the book and the work that you all do, and, and more than that, how you do uh, that work. It was fascinating writing about it. It's a, it's a great organization. So thank you so much for joining me today inside the Leader Lab and for giving me so much time uh, to, to research and to study your company and talk about them in the book, The Myths of Creativity. Well, thank you, David. It's been a real pleasure. It's been a real pleasure reading your book. 